0: Hey, I'm Stephen Hovatter, the lead minister at Central Church of Christ in Little Rock, Arkansas. Our goal as a church is to follow Jesus together. So we gather on Sunday mornings for Bible study at 9 a.m. and worship at 10:15 a.m. And you'd always be welcome to join us. To learn more, go to arcentralchurch.org. Thanks for listening, and we hope to see you soon. A little song that you know, and it goes a little something like this. And this is about to become clear why I am the preacher and not... So some, of you, some of you guys were here when I did karaoke before, and you saw how that went. So if the praise team wants to give me a little help, you know, just... Or not, that might be a better idea for you. So. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. You know it? His mercies never come to, come to an end. They are new every morning, grace your faithfulness, the Lord is my portion, says my soul, therefore What you may not know about that little ditty, as cheerful as it is, is that it comes from the book of Lamentations. And the first part of the chapter goes like this. I am one who has seen affliction under the rod of God's wrath. Didn't make it into the song, obviously. (laughs) He has driven and brought me into darkness without any light. Against me alone, he turns his hand again and again all day long. He has made my flesh and my skin waste away. He has broken my bones. He has besieged and enveloped me with bitterness and tribulation. He has made me sit in darkness like the dead of long ago. He has walled me in so that I cannot escape. He has put heavy chains on me. Though I call and cry for help, he shuts out my prayer. He has blocked my ways with hewn stones. He has made my paths Crooked, he is a bear lying in wait for me. A lion in hiding. A teenager that doesn't want to get up in the, oh no, 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 I'm sorry. I got caught up there. Some fierce things. Just leave it at that. He led me off my way and tore me to pieces he has made me desolate he bent his bow and set me as a mark for his arrows he shot into my vitals into my organs the arrows of his quiver I have become the laughing stock of all my people, the object of their taunt songs all day long. He has filled me with bitterness. He has sated me with wormwood. He has made my teeth grind on gravel. He has made me cower in ashes. My soul is bereft of peace. I have forgotten what happiness is. I have forgotten what happiness is. So I say, gone is my glory and all that I had hoped for from the Lord. I thought of my affliction and my homelessness as wormwood and gall. My soul continually thinks of it and is bowed down within me. But this I call to mind, and therefore I have hope. The steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Somebody ought to put some music to those first few verses is what I think. We have been working through the story and mission of God, the mission and the story of God and looking at different moments that are significant turning points in how scripture tells about what God is at work doing in the world. There are lots of ways of doing this. There are people that can tell you that story in three chapters, that it began with creation and then there was sin and the fall and then there is redemption. But I think that leaves a couple of things out. There are people that will tell it in three, five, seven stories. You can pick whatever number you want. But part of the reason I do it in 10 is because I think it's important that we have a little bit of room to talk about the exile. We cannot understate how significant the moment of the exile is in the story of Scripture. Now, we've already gone through creation and then the corruption of the world through sin, the God's covenant that he makes with Abraham and his descendants after that. We thought about the Exodus moment where God reveals himself to be a deliverer and when he establishes the people as a new kind of community in the kingdom chapter. But after that, we have to make room to talk about the exile. The facts of this moment are pretty easily discovered historically. Israel and Judah, these twin uh, parts of the kingdom, were left in the 8th uh, the uh, century B.C., about 800 years before Jesus, about 700 years before Jesus. These great empires began rising in their corner of the world. And at first, in the 700s, there came to be what was known as the Assyrian Empire, and the Assyrian Empire um, just dominated that region of the world. In 722, they completely demolished the northern kingdom's capital of Samaria and basically wiped the northern kingdom off of the face of the earth forever. By 701, about 21 years later, they had completely surrounded jerusalem so much so that in the annals of the assyrian kings the king at that time the emperor of that land a guy named senecherib boasts and he says i trapped i trapped up hezekiah in the city of jerusalem like a bird and i besieged that city Like He was like a bird in a cage. Now, what they don't tell you in the annals of the Assyrian kings is that after that happened, he went home with his tail between his legs because he couldn't actually take over the city that he besieged. But that's a story for another day. But they had him by the throat. The prophet Isaiah talks about it as though floodwaters were rising and Israel just barely could keep its nose above water. They survived that very, very barely. Judah did. The northern kingdom of Israel did not survive. Judah survived it. However, by the time that the Assyrian kingdom fell, the Assyrian empire fell in 609 B.C., okay, Uh, They were already struggling um, mightily with trying to figure out what their place in this new world was going to be. Judah finally uh, realized in 605, just a few, you guys are taking notes, right? You can Wikipedia it later, it's fine. Um, They finally realized in 605 that when the new king, uh, the new uh, big bully on the block, the Babylonians came to power, the Babylonians had demolished the Assyrians in 609, but they got a new king themselves in 605, and his name was Nebuchadnezzar. And when Nebuchadnezzar came to power, he demanded that this kingdom of Judah would bow the knee to him. They refused to do that. They kind of played games with him a little bit. And he began in a series of invasions from 605 all the way until about 20 years later in 586. He began by this series of stages to put his thumb, his boot harder on the neck of Judah. Eventually taking off all the people that had any skills whatsoever into what we call the exile demolishing the city's walls and importantly, its temple to Yahweh. And that's what Jeremiah is writing out of in Lamentations chapter 3. He's looking around at his city, which is now lying in ruins, right? He's thinking about the experience of everything that he holds dear being wiped to the ground. It was a catastrophic trauma. And so much of what we call the Bible is dedicated to the people of God trying to think through what in the world that meant. And if you've ever had a traumatic incident in your life, if you've ever had a catastrophe that you didn't expect, you know what it means to sit down after the smoke's cleared and think through, how am I supposed to think about what just happened to me? Anybody ever had a moment like that? I won't make you tell it. Sometimes moments are so catastrophic and their impacts are so traumatic that they affect not just the immediate people in that moment, but they can even be, those traumatic effects can carry on through generations. And that's the sort of event that the exile was for Judah. Judah. It was a trauma, the echoes of which which would continue through the generations as they tried to think through what it meant to be the people of a God who could let such a thing happen. And it wasn't easy. There were a lot of different explanations in the air at the time. The prophet Jeremiah, we've been reading his work in Lamentations. But if we look through the other book that bears his name, the book of Jeremiah, we find that he is often kind of in battle. He's a prophet. He's speaking a word from God. But he's not the only one in town. There are other prophets who are basically getting into arguments with him about what God is doing in this time. And they are, teaching, they are teaching a theology that says, as long as God is on our side, nothing bad can happen to us. As long as we live in this place where God's temple is, as long as we're close to the temple, nothing can bad can ever happen to us. And Jeremiah is looking at his watch and going oh, it's coming. And you think that this whole thing is gonna blow over in a moment. But God has told me that you got at least 70 years of suffering under the Babylonian overlords. And he said, and we can argue about that. You can just wait and see. And that's why we have a book in our Bible called Jeremiah, but we don't have a book in our Bible called Shemaiah because Jeremiah's word bore true. The exile was a moment in which Judah had to rethink what it meant to be God's people. Now, there had been many voices trying to help them rethink that already, long before uh, the Babylonians demolished the temple in, in 587, 586. Before that happened, there had been voices like the voice of Isaiah, who was telling the people, you'd better put away any hint of an idol because trying to worship God and somebody else is only going to bring disaster to you. Or voices like Jeremiah or some of the other prophets who had told the people, hey, as long as Judah is a society in which the powerful become more powerful and use their power against the people on the underside of society. And as long as we're a society where only the rich can take care of their needs and everybody else is just left to beg and suffer, as long as we're a people of injustice, we are on a track of destruction. So there were people who were already trying to help Judah rethink its faith and make sure that they would put away idolatry and make sure that they would put away injustice. But the witness of Scripture is that while some of those voices were heard by some of the people, there were other people who would not listen And so eventually what God had spoken came true. Turn with me, if you will, to Jeremiah chapter 25. I want to read just a a couple of places where this is talked about. We're going to get a date in this text in the beginning of Jeremiah 25. And I just want to look at these texts because they're they're texts that we don't think about a lot because it's not our trauma. It wasn't our catastrophe. Okay. But these texts were so critical in the way that Judah thought about their God. We get a date here. Uh, It's the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay. So it's 605 B.C. And over the next 20 years is when all this kind of suffering is going to begin to unfold. The word of the Lord that came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of King Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah of Judah, that was the first year of King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, which the prophet Jeremiah spoke to all the people of Judah and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem for 23 years, from the 13th year of King Josiah, the son of Ammon of Judah, To this day, the word of the Lord has come to me, and I have spoken persistently to you, but you have not listened. And though the Lord persistently sent you all his servants, the prophets, you have neither listened nor inclined your ears to hear when they said, Turn now, every one of you, from your evil way and wicked doings, that you will remain upon the land that the Lord has given to you and your ancestors of old and from of old and forever." Do not go after other gods to serve and to worship them and do not provoke me to anger with the work of your hands and then I'll do you no harm. And yet you did not listen to me, says the Lord. And so you have provoked me to anger with the work of your hands to your own harm. And therefore the Lord of the hosts says this, because you have not obeyed my words, I'm going to send for all the tribes of the north, says the Lord, even for King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, my servant. How do you think that sounded to Judah? To hear a prophet say, King Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. King Nebuchadnezzar, my servant. And I will bring them against this land and its inhabitants and against all these nations around. And I will utterly destroy them and make them an object of horror and of hissing and an everlasting disgrace. And I'll banish from them the sound of mirth and the sound of gladness. The voice of the bridegroom, the voice of the bridegroom. Sound of the millstones and the light of the lamp. This whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall serve the king of Babylon for 70 years. And then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. And I will bring upon the land, that land all the words that I've uttered against it, everything written in the book, which Jeremiah prophesied, against all the nations. So he says, Babylon's going to get to do this work for 70 years. They're going to bring about suffering. But after that 70 years, they're going to suffer themselves, okay? So Babylon is not innocent. They are not the heroes in the story. But they too will have a time to suffer, Jeremiah essentially is going to retell that prophecy in chapter 29, okay, in a text that many of us maybe, you know, we, we hear every once in a while, right? Every once in a while, we hear this verse 29, Jeremiah 29, 11, for surely I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord, plans for your welfare and not for harm to give you a future with hope. You guys have heard this verse, right? It's a great coffee cup verse. But what we might not get in the coffee cup is the verses that come before that. In verse four, thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat what they produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease Seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf, for in its welfare you will find your welfare, in its peace you will find your peace. For the Lord says, For thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let the prophets and the diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream, for it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, says the Lord. For thus says the Lord, only when Babylon's 70 years are completed will I visit you, and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For surely I know the plans that I have for you, right? So, the first part of this text, Jeremiah is countering some of his rival prophets who are saying, This is all going to blow over in a minute. It's not going to be that bad. Don't even bother unpacking your suitcase. Jeremiah says, No, you need to dig in, because this isn't just going to last a day or a week or a year. You basically have a whole generation to live under this. And I know what I'm doing, and I know the plans that I have. Okay? So that's a little bit of the context of what's happening here. What's remarkable about all of this to me is how Judah took this moment. And in the middle of all the chaos, in the middle of all the suffering, in the middle of everything bad that happened that they couldn't even give name to, in the middle of that, there was some thread woven through. Something about what it meant to be faithful despite everything that was happening around. What's remarkable to me about it all is not just what was lost, but what remained. What was able to survive, even though sometimes it was covered in dust. And there was something powerful that survived this disaster. There was a word about a God that would still be present even if they had been shipped off to Babylon. There was a word about a God that wouldn't tolerate idolatry, a word about God that wouldn't tolerate injustice, and those things are woven through, and those threads keep going on. There was a word that said, even in this disaster, God will bring you back It's going to be 70 years from now. But God will bring you back. A word that even though death was all around. That life would win the day. That life would somehow go on. That God's faithfulness. Was not at an end. It brings us right back to the beginning, right? What's remarkable is that Jeremiah can both say, on one hand, in the book, third chapter of Lamentations, he can both say, I have forgotten what happiness looks like. And then also say, how can he do it? Also say, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. And the miracle of the exile is that Judah found a way to hold all that together. They found a way to hold the experience of suffering. And the hope for life. And they found a way to name it. I mean, does does it sound like Jeremiah was a guy that didn't say exactly what he was thinking to you? To name it with all the truth that he can muster. With every ounce of harsh truth that he dares say. He can say every bit of it as truly as 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 he's experiencing it. But they can also hold up in some way hope. And I think that was the miracle of the exile. I was at a conference a year ago, and I was listening to this guy that had been remarkably um, successful as a as a as a ch- evangelist, as a church planner. He was working, you know, starting like small groups of um, mission, little small churches and doing evangelistic work in, in China. And it was, one of these, it was one of these guys that were like, you know, he's like, how many people have you guys, you know, reached for the gospel? And he's like, oh, I don't know, seven or, seven or eight million, you know. It's one of these ridiculous kind of things. You're like, that, that can't be true. I don't know. <laughs> the guy said, okay, here's, here's what blew my mind. He said, what we do, we just kind of have a fast. There's a lot of discipleship work left to be done okay but when we reach people when we convert them okay we want to make sure that we teach them just four or five things now if i want i want to i want you to think for a second about what would make your list if you're going to teach a new disciple of jesus just a handful of things what would be on your list so here here here's what was on his list to teach them to pray We're going to teach them to read scripture with a heart to try to obey it. We're going to teach them to share their faith with other people. And then this is the fourth one. The fourth one blew my mind. He said the fourth thing that we have to teach them is we have to teach them to be ready to endure suffering. I got to tell you, I don't know if that would be number four on my list, but I think there is a great truth in that because the question for us that I think the exile poses is, do we have a faith that is rooted enough that it will remain resilient in the face of hardship? We can create elaborate theologies, incredible expressions of faith. We can have songs of exuberant praise, enthusiastic praise. We can have downright jubilant and joyful Sunday morning worship. But if we can't endure suffering, our faith will become ashes. It is critical to us that we learn to dig our roots deep into the ground, to let them be nourished by a faith that can still hang on even when things are hard. And we do a disservice when we forget that that's part of the faith, right? That's why I think it's important when we think about what it means to be the people of God. We think about the story of God and the mission of God. It is malpractice for us to tell the story of God's people without paying attention to the exile. Because the the moral, the root, the theme of the exile is this. Things will not go like you think they will all the time they won't go like you think they should hard times will come and yet the steadfast love of the lord never ceases and it will god will remain faithful even when things are falling apart. Pray with me. Oh God, each of us encounters hard times in different ways. And if we are honest, some of us have more of our share than others do. So, God, would you teach us to be empathetic and kind to each other and supportive and loving so that we can help each other get through the dark days. And God, would you deepen our faith so that the roots will be deep enough and strong enough to remain even when hard winds blow around us. God, we pray that we would have a hearty, resilient Faith that is ready to give praise to you even while we honestly and truthfully name the destructive stuff that we experience in the world or that we see other people expressing. And God, we cry out. With the ancients who went before us and with those who suffer in the world today, All across the world, and with those even in our community of faith who are experiencing unspeakably hard times, we cry out, how long, O Lord? Would you be a deliverer again and give rescue where you hear voices crying out in pain? May your people who experience the darkness be a light nonetheless. In the name of Jesus we pray, amen. Let's sing together.